I just want to tell a little story about um, uh, a little practice incident that happened over the last few weeks. Um, I think it was about three weeks ago on a Friday in my uh, English 138 class that's called What is a Self? And um, for the last five years or so, when I've taught this class, I've always near the end of the semester, um, had them do some exercises that um, are intended to get the students to reflect on their values and priorities. Um, and one that I've done regularly is a meditation on contemplating our priorities in light of our mortality by Joan Halifax. I've actually uploaded the recording that I made in, during that class a few weeks ago to the Intro to Zen podcast. So if you want to um, hear that that meditation and do it yourself, you can find it there. It's, a, it's one of the recent episodes. It basically asks um, the person to imagine that they're old on their deathbed, uh, picture themselves in detail, um, and, um, and think about things like what matters to you now? Who's around you? What, what, what are the things in your room? What kinds of things would you like to have accomplished by this time in your life as you are about to die? Um, and then it asks a person to imagine themselves 10 years from the age they are um, on their deathbed. And each time the questions are slightly different because she's just, Halifax is doing this to kind of draw out different things that people might reflect on when thinking about their mortality. Uh, one month from now, one week from now, tonight, you, you go to sleep and realize that you're not gonna wake up. Um, what is it that um, made your life meaningful? You know, um, And of course the idea is that um, by taking seriously the fact that we live finite lives, um, we have a chance to think about what it is that we would like to spend our time doing, realizing, experiencing. Um, over the years when I've done this, and I think Halifax does this at our hospice training program at Upaya uh, Zen Center in Santa Fe, um, you know, what people often feel is that it's not that I wish I was rich or that I had a big house or this or that, though sometimes it's like that, but often it's certain kind of relationships that come to mind, certain feelings, certain qualities of mind that they wish they um, would like to have uh, cultivated by um, the time they die. Um, so, um, so I've done this a number of times and it's always a very powerful experience. Um, but often one that leaves me feeling profoundly grateful, um, grounded, connected, not this Friday. Um, and, um, in fact, I felt, I felt profoundly unsettled. Uh, I was actually going to post it on my Instagram account, um, for, um, you know, college students to, to do if they wanted to just, you know, make it available. But I felt so unsettled by this experience, I decided not to. I said, mm, I, like, I don't know what this is gonna do if I just put this out there and I don't wanna 
I don't have any response for people having like existential crises, you know? So, um, so I didn't. And then the next, um, you know, I, I actually got talked to the students, um, the following class and found out that some of them had the very sort of typical experience of, you know, really sort of deep being a sense of what matters relationship, you know, feeling like it was clarifying. Um, and, but some of them also felt very unsettled as well. And so I, was, I felt like glad that I hadn't actually like to sort of put this out there in the world. So I put on our podcast because I felt like the people who listen to the intro to Zen podcast just have a, have a deeper engagement with practice. And I felt like this is something appropriate for that context, not necessarily appropriate for an Instagram account that's followed by very casual meditators, you know, uh, college age meditators. So, um, and I, I felt really good about that decision in retrospect. Um, so, um, but what I want to talk about is my own unsettled feeling. Um, so I'll, I'll also say, actually, like this is this is a very powerful meditation. It's meant to be. I mean, it's it's it, it raises the stakes in order to produce a kind of like bright light. Say what really matters, you know. Um, and I'll actually say that there's a, a friend of mine who did it um, early in the pandemic because I recorded a version of this like back in April or May. So if you look back on the Intro to Zen podcast, you can find another version where I talked about mortality and death. She did it back then. And actually after many months of reflection, after that very profound experience, she decided to give up her job at Williams um, and, and realized that actually she didn't really want to do this anymore for her, her living um, and, and has completely altered the course of her life. Um, it wasn't obviously just that, um, but it, it kind of gave her an opportunity to reflect in a really deep way. And it was one, that's wonderful, actually. I, I, it was wonderful to hear that. Um, so I left this experience wanting very much to quit my job. Um, and um, for me, this is not a new, new feeling. Um, and it's, um, it's actually kind of boringly not new. Um, so, um, but in any case, it came back really strong. Um, and, and let me tell you, I just completely got hooked by these thoughts, completely. I mean, started immediately thinking about, oh my God, like I can't like, you know, okay, what, it's like late in the year. What am I going to do? Do I have to, you know, I have, I have two more years of chairing left. I mean, am I just going to completely burn my bridges here, you know? Um, and then like, you know, my family likes in Williamstown, but it's so hard to find another job here. It's a small, you know, like literally going to details about like, you know, like, like not thinking like, huh, why do I have been more like, okay, this is, this is how I feel. This is what I got to do. Let's act, you know? Um, it took me two or three days of being completely lost in these beliefs um, before I, I was able to kind of see it as something to practice with. And I have practiced for a long time. Um, and so if I just, I say this because I actually think there is a profound shift in how experience emotional reactivity. There are many things that I feel 
on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis, which when I was younger would have completely thrown me for a loop, um, that I can be aware of and do not unsettle me, sometimes at all, sometimes a little bit, but in no way that's really big. Um, So, you know, when people talk about equanimity and balance as being one of the fruits of practice, it's real. but I think, um, but I also want to say, but not for everything. And I think I said this once, like work is a particularly big button for me. You know, I can deal with a lot of stuff um, with some equanimity, but when it comes to work, something deep gets triggered. Um, and so I started sitting with it. And I started especially doing soft belly practice because as Sylvia noted really well, it's like, it's a really good way of staying in the body when you just want to do anything but be in the body, when you just want to believe your thoughts and, and run with them. Um, so I just stayed. I started saying, okay, I, I still want to leave, but I can't, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to just suck it up. I'm going to practice with this for a while. Um, and, and I started hearing certain thoughts that started to like become not just the truth, but actually start to emerge as storylines, which I could see a bit in a hazy way. I don't want to exaggerate, really like just a bit as scripts, as storylines. And there were two big ones that I saw emerge. Um, One is what's the use of teaching what I do at the college when it's not going to have any effect anyway. You know, um, it's not doing any good. Um, or I can't know if it's doing good. I might do some good once in a while, but basically I'm not doing anything that's useful, you know. Um, and then that was probably the, the deep one. Okay. And a related one was I had I realized there were, I had become set in this identity as a person who could help other people. I was the spiritual guy who could give people access to meditation and do good for them. So like those two were like a nice double whammy, right? Um, And so, um, and I think one of the reasons why I think those thoughts about I'm not doing it, it was because of some conversations we've been having in class. You know, and also I think just, you know, the reality of the difficulty of life being a college student where I think students are really genuinely interested in practice, but to get through college, it's kind of hard. You know, sometimes you just got to duck your head and do what you have to do. Work piles up. Sometimes you really can't afford to look too deeply within or for too long. Um, because it becomes really hard to just actually do what you have to do to make it through. Um, and I was, ha- I was getting a lot of that from conversations I had with my students. And I said, you know, not only am I not really being very helpful because like the practice isn't doing any good, but also it's like, am I even doing a good thing by introducing them to this, you know? Um, but the key thing that became clear um, and this is probably took me about five days, four or five days of sitting in kind of pretty unpleasant stew of negativity and reactivity um, was that I realized I'm worrying about outcomes. 
I'm worrying about whether or not what I do will have a particular effect. And if it doesn't, then it's not worth it. You know, um, not, and not only is it not worth it, I'm gonna fail, I'm no good, um, but also I'm not who I see myself as. You know, so those two things, like there's a kind of identity that was being destabilized along with the, um, and as soon as I saw those thoughts clearly, I could feel this groundlessness beneath them. The thing that I didn't want to feel that lay beneath these thoughts, which felt so unpleasant, which was, what would it be like to just offer what I have to offer without worrying about what kind of outcomes will happen? Or who I am as a person that does this? What about not worrying about that? Not worrying about what would happen, not worrying about the results and not worrying about who I am as someone who does this. And I could see beneath the thoughts that were all based on the identity and the outcomes and feel the kind of just ground give way beneath me. And I could say, no wonder, <laughs> like I don't wanna hang out in this space beneath because it's so, Jim Sharp a while back talked about feeling something's lost you know, when you're meditating. And it felt like that, like there's no way to orient. Just you, just, you just do what you think should be done, but you can't know, can't control what's gonna happen because of it. It's not because you're a particular kind of person. In any case, um, I could see how um, the desire for outcomes and the seeing myself as the kind of person who could be a helper were classic ways of trying to fix and get control over the groundlessness that lay underneath these storylines. That, and you know, the thing is about storylines, sometimes like you feel good about them, you know? And so you can buy into them and say, oh yeah, I am being helpful. You know, I am a good person, right? And you can buy, and then, and then you're like, oh, and then such a fragile house of cards, right? To be living in. And then that's what happened that, that meditation. I started to feel like, oh, I am trying to solidify the ground beneath my feet. And the irony, of course, is that by doing that, I wasn't even being true to what I thought I was teaching. <laughs> Right, Because of course, the whole essence of what I actually saw myself as doing was introducing the liberatory power of experiencing that groundlessness. And I was using that very identity and that very task as a way of creating a ground. So you can, you can make an ego or a self-identity out of anything, including selflessness. <laughs> you know, that's, it's like, it's anything can be used for the purposes of stabilization and control. Um, so, you know, I think there was a, a moment a, a couple of years ago where I, I had really, you know, come found peace with being at Williams, which is, I don't know what I could do here, but I just have something I feel like I could offer. I'll just offer, why the hell not? And Ezra's um, partner, Elizabeth Hamilton, who was a teacher, is actually, a, she taught at um, 
community college in San Diego and taught in the very way that I teach now at Williams. And she's the one who encouraged me to do this and said, what the hell? Like, you know, if you don't like it in the end, go like quit. And, you know, if they fire you, so what, you know, you don't, you barely want to be there anyway. Um, and, and it turned, it became like a wonderful way to be at Williams, but over time it calcified into an identity, calcified into concern about outcomes and results. And what I could feel during that meditation was the burnout that was building up simply by being overly concerned about what effects I was having, being, wanting to know, you know. So I'm not saying I don't have any effect, that I can't do any good, but it's, that's not my business. It's not anyone's business, you know. Um, just offer openly. So um, in any case, I think I just want to, I think, tell, talk about this because first of all, that experience of being hooked, it's powerful. Whatever the big button is for any of you, it's gonna, it's, we're just gonna, there are times we're just gonna be lost, you know, believing full heartedly, whatever scripts we have. Even if we have at some point in the past, as I had seen them, like this is as if it, you had like amnesia about any kind of practice you'd done previously, you know, just totally forget. And then I think, I think I just want to touch on this because of the deep nature of the desire to control and to produce security, a sense of security by finding something that we can get a handle on, a concern with like having a set result if we do this, like, you know, and I think you can imagine that in so many different contexts, that the context of political activism, right? Um, the context of working on with your patients or clients, right? With your students, some of your teachers, um, also with your children. I know I had to do, I've done, the thing is I could actually be this way with my own child. For some reason I couldn't be this way with my students. That's it, that was the interesting thing. Um, I can actually be okay with my, kids, especially my son who has been going through some difficulties, I can be, I can give him space and not have to fix him. But somehow when it comes to career, it feels different. You know, and I think we each have our own different triggers or different buttons. Um, so, um, okay. Anyway, I don't know if this resonates with anyone. I'll pause there, leave space for people to ask questions about the practice we did, about what I said, or just to share your own perspective on any of this. So, um, and if you felt like this resonated all, that would be interesting here too, because I feel like maybe it was like quicker and more superficial than I thought it would be. It actually sounds kind of boring. Funny thing is when you're in it, it sounds so important. And afterwards, it's just like, ugh, <laughs> drama. <laughs> I did, I was really glad to hear it. I get stuck in these crazy brain loops and hearing about yours. Uh, I, you, you got out of it. <laughs> I don't. So that was really helpful for me. It was there's, there's actually hope. really there's important. <laughs> Thanks, Jealous. It is hilarious though, actually, like after when you're out of it, just feel like, oh my God, what a, what a soap opera. <laughs> I feel embarrassed actually now that it's like, oh my, you almost think I'm so petty. Oh, okay. More thoughts. <laughs> I, 
I wonder if we don't all have so, Sylvia, could you speak up a little bit? Sorry, it's hard to hear, yeah. Can you hear me now? Is this better? Okay. I'm wondering if some of this like self-identity and questioning and if it's important. I, I hate to say this, but I think a lot of it is how we're raised and what society makes us feel. If we don't have like, what do you do? And you don't say anything, who are you? Like you, you can't be compartmentalized. You are a free floater. What if you just say, uh, maybe, maybe we should ask each other, what do you love doing? What's your passion? Because otherwise you get labeled and, and then as a teacher or as a whatever, mother or whatever, but why do we have to be, be anything? We can just be who we are. And I think that that's a lot of our self-worth is being questioned. And this is the only time we have the guts to do that is when we're sitting. Otherwise, it's just too big a question. We just want to stay away from it. So in a way, I just feel like it's something really fundamental that we're, from, the, from when we're born, we're some, it, it gives us security to, like you said, to, to be able to, okay, this, this person's a tomboy, this person's the athlete, this person, but we're all a little bit of everything. So that openness of mind and meditation is also what we have to do to see when we see each other and when we see ourselves. And that's, it's not, it's hard to do all the time. I'm so glad you said that, Sylvia. It's, it's, it, it's very powerful. And you know, the irony is I'm actually a better parent and a better teacher when I'm not worried about being a teacher or a parent, right? That's, that's the funny thing. It's like, as soon as you start to be like identified and then you have to get results fitting that role then actually it starts to become like a chore, a performance and burnout ensues, right? Um, yeah. And unauthentic. Mm -hmm. This isn't really about practice, but I, I resonated with the, um, the way you spoke about starting something and feeling really open and available to it and without expectation and then over time calcifying into it and calcifying into your own expectations of what you should be or how you should be in it, which no one did to you, but you, and I say you meaning, you know, I'm speaking, mm -hmm. speaking for myself. Totally. Um, and I just wonder how to, I feel like I'm always trying to understand how to maintain that feeling of self as like separate from the things that I do or the behaviors that I participate in or the places that I live that feels allows me to feel kind of like free and disconnected which allows me to feel more connected ultimately um yeah I wish I knew how to do that in all areas of my life more totally you know Marnie one thing I came to um sorry after this particular wave of identification I was like i think it's kind of just inevitable i i don't like we sort of get you know we 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 sort of get caught we and i think maybe that the trick is not to figure out how not to get caught but just to acknowledge that we're, the, the ego will like go through these like solidifications and then to see that as the path right yeah right. Right. I, I talked to well i talked to ezra on the phone about this and he totally said yeah i don't he doesn't know a single zen teacher who doesn't have exactly these worries about like, am I having any effect? And, and he actually one time talked, he gave a wonderful story about coming to a sitting 
and only like one person was there. And he's like, so, oh man, what kind of teacher am I? You know, I'm just like, I'm, I'm no good. And then he realized later he was like an hour early. <laughs> and then he said, well, that was good to see that, that ego trip. <laughs> Actually, to even go a little bit another, Marnie, I think I, because I think then the one worry would be like, if we figure out, like, if we think there's a right way to do it, right? So we never get caught, you know? Yeah. And that could be another kind of slightly detourish path. Yeah. Right. Well, it, it makes me think about, because I, I agree with you. I feel like I've, um, like, of course it's inevitable and we can always just over time, like come back to the self and that will just happen as it happens. Mm -hmm. um, but it also reminds me of what you said earlier about passing through feelings of discomfort and just learning over time how to pass through them faster or yeah. easier or with more tools. And so, yeah, I want to learn how to, I think that that's maybe that's more what I mean is like how to pass through it faster or how to be aware of it so I can pass through it with more ease than I well, have passed. The last time I went through this, it lasted three months. <laughs> so so actually there is some improvement. Yeah. <laughs> oh. And you should have seen what I put my wife through. Oh, I felt so bad for her. She was like, okay, she finally said, okay, you're so miserable. Go ahead, quit. We'll move anyway. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't. Because the funny thing is like, like, we don't need to. Like, it's not about the job. It just would have happened somewhere else, right? That's the thing, yeah. Well, to say 35, maybe it's a good moment to, to it was, it, it was really nice to, to hear people who spoke tonight. Thank you. Um, can we sit for like one minute and, and then say good night? I always love doing that. Okay. So, thank you all for coming. It's really nice to see you. Okay, my friends, good to see you all. Take care. Thank you, Bernie. Mm, thank you. Good night. Thanks, Bernie. Bye -bye. Thanks, Bernie. Thank you, Bernie. Thank you, Bernie. Thank you. Bye, Jim. Good night.